morning. So next Sunday, as you uh, just saw, we're going to begin a new uh, series of sermons during the season of Advent called All I Want for Christmas. Mariah Carey is uh, optional. We will walk toward our celebration of the birth of Christ, the incarnation, that is the event in which God became flesh and made his dwelling among us in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. So after this morning's message, we're going to take a break from Revelation. Uh, I tried to see if it would fit in Advent. It really doesn't work at all. And we're going to enter into Advent and prepare our hearts and our lives for Christmas. Advent, for those of you who don't know, is a word that means the coming or the arrival, the season of Advent, the four Sundays leading up to Christmas is the beginning of a new year in the observance of the church calendar, the larger church calendar. Uh, and that means that today, if next week is the beginning of a new year, then today is sort of like New Year's Eve. The church calendar is designed to walk through God's history with his people as they waited for a Messiah, the coming of the Messiah, his life, his death, his resurrection, the sending of the Holy Spirit, and then eventually his return. The return of Christ is what this Sunday in the church year is all about. Today is known as either Christ the King Sunday or Reign of Christ Sunday. This is the Sunday when we are reminded of where God in Christ is taking all things, to a new creation, to the final judgment, where God will make all things right. We're going to encounter all of that later on in Revelation chapters 20, 21, and 22. It is fitting, then, that we spend some time in our passage from Revelation 7 this morning. For Revelation 7, which is made up of two of those, depending on how you count them, how you count them two of those interludes that we've talked about a little bit, Revelation 7 is a picture, it is a celebration of the final victory the faithful are promised in Christ Jesus. Chapter 7 takes place right before the end of the seven seals, the first of those three cycles of sevens that we find in Revelation. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. These cycles are not to be understood as future events that are mapped out in a linear fashion. They are best understood as three different perspectives of the same period of time. The time in between Christ's resurrection and ascension and Christ's return. The time in which we find ourselves. These interludes in Revelation give us a bit of relief from this march toward judgment that we encounter in the book. They draw us in. They help us to sort of reorient ourselves to the bigger story, the bigger vision of where God is taking all things. They enable us to catch our collective breath before moving on. I remember the first time I saw the movie The Matrix, way back in 1999? The first 30 minutes of that film about did me in, because anything can happen, there were no rules, it was incredibly stressful for me, it was so bad, it was almost unbearable, you just didn't know, you were completely disoriented, and for me at least, that created a fear of the unknown, I I don't know what's going to happen, I don't think I can take this, I seriously wondered if I had, I was going to have what it would take to last the next hour and 45 minutes that were still left in the film, but then, just when I needed it most, (laughs) things began to fall into place, started to make a little more sense. It was the breather that I needed to be able to sit through the rest of the movie. Once I had a sense of the bigger picture, the real story, I could withstand the onslaught of uncertainty and weirdness and violence. 
These interludes in Revelation do something similar. They, they give us perspective. And they inspire hope and confidence that God is at work and that in the end, victory is ours. They show us the bigger picture. Just before chapter 7 in John's vision, remember the Lamb had just finished opening the sixth seal around the scroll and the imagery of what to come was dreadful and frightening. And in language that is highly symbolic, just as a little bit of a refresher and not to be taken too literally, there is an earthquake, the moon turns to blood, the, the sun goes dark, stars fall from the sky, every mountain and island is removed from its place. And the people cry out, who will be able to stand when the great day of the wrath of God and of the Lamb comes? Just as the seventh seal is about to be opened, a new vision interrupts. Everyone is waiting for the final judgment. They're on pins and needles. Then an interlude. Now let's see if this thing's going to work this week. Yes, it works. Here's what it says. Chapter 7, verses 1 to 3. After this, John says, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or in any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. So the image you have here at the beginning there is of a flat earth. And no, I, I do not believe in a flat earth, but the ancient people saw it differently and the imagery stuck. We still talk about the four, cor four corners of the earth. Four corners being northwest, southwest, northeast, southeast. It was believed in that time that winds that came from the four corners were more destructive. They brought with them heat, drought, cold, snow, locusts, and disease. Winds then, in the ancient uh, world, winds brought divine judgment. But four angels are holding back the winds of judgment and the opening, they're delaying the opening of the seventh seal. John also tells us of an additional angel who commands the other four to hold back the winds until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Who? Who can withstand the day of wrath and judgment? Those servants of God. Those servants of God whom God has sealed. To be sealed, then, is to be protected, and it is to be marked as those who belong to God. We may still suffer in this life, in this world, but when the end comes, we do not need to worry about the final judgment. We are protected from God's final judgment. And then John says in verse 4, Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. John then hears a listing that I'm not going to reread for you of Israel's 12 tribes, each numbering 12,000, 12 times 12,000, 144,000. And like so much in the book of Revelation, this number is a symbolic number. It is not a literal number. It is symbolic of the completeness of the people of God. 12,000 from each tribe, 144,000. And what comes next in the passage is going to prove this point to some degree. As was the case in chapter 5, if you remember, John hears one thing, but he sees another. 
And this hearing and seeing goes back and forth throughout the book of Revelation. John hears one thing, sees another there. He heard that the lion of the tribe of Judah was worthy to open the scroll and break the seals. But when he looked, he didn't see a lion. He saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain and resurrected, standing beside the throne. He heard one thing, but he saw another. Same thing happens in chapter 7. John heard the number of those being sealed was 144,000, and then we read in verse 9, After this I looked, or I saw more literally, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. John heard the number 144,000, but he saw a great multitude that no one could count. And that multitude consisted not merely of the 12 tribes of Israel, but of persons from every nation, tribe, people, and language. The completeness of the 144,000 becomes the completeness of people from every ethnicity and land, the fulfilling of the great commission Jesus gave his first disciples in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, to go into all the earth and to make disciples of every nation. The fulfillment of that commission is envisioned in Revelation 7. This is a vision of the coming day when Christ will rule as king of the universe like never before. His reign will be fully implemented, fully realized on earth as it is in the heavens. This, this is where all things are headed. What began symbolically with the tribes of Israel now ripples outward to become a countless multitude of people. This multitude then cries out in verse 10, last part of verse 10. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And as the worship of the multitude rises, the vision now zooms in on those gathered most closely to the throne. The angels, the 24 elders, the four living creatures. And then in verses 11 and 12, they fall on their faces and they worship God saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. It's what happens next that is most important. For the vision in these last few verses of Revelation 7 gives us the strength to keep reading and answers a little more fully, answers the question of who can stand when judgment comes. Now, so we've zoomed in, we're going to zoom in a little further still to a close-up conversation between one of the 24 elders around the throne and John, verses 13 and 14. The, then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. It's, it's very common to get to a point by having the person ask the question who knows the answer already. So that's what's going on. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Who can stand the wrath of the Lamb in the face of the one who's on the throne? Those who are sealed by God. Those who belong to God and are protected by God. Those who have had their robes washed in the sacrificial blood of the Lamb, they will stand. Not only will they stand at the last day, the elder says, but they will come out on the other side of something he refers to as 
the great tribulation. Lation, 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 lation. And the great tribulation is another one of those buzzwords and phrases in Revelation that gets people all worked up about its meaning. There are three very basic understandings, potential understandings of the Great Tribulation. Though most of us, my experience would say, have only heard one of these. Very briefly, the futurist approach. Strictly about the future. Those who hold this view think that the Great Tribulation and much of what we find in Revelation is all going to take place off in the future sometime. It flows from the belief that Revelation is a sort of, quote, history written in advance. This is the left-behind variety, or going back even further to the 70s, 1970s, the late great planet Earth. That's the first view, the future. The second view believes that what we find in Revelation and the elders' reference to the Great Tribulation has all already taken place. It was, therefore, specifically written to and for John's audience late in the first century. The fancy $5 scholarly word for this second um, view, and you're never going to use it again, but here it is, preterist. The preterist approach means the past. Don't know why they don't just call it that, but this is what it's called, the preterist. The third view of the events of the Great Tribulation is that it is past, present, ongoing, and future. Past, present, ongoing, and future. That is, it all began when Christ ascended and was taken up to heaven in Acts chapter 1, and it will only end when Christ returns. Interestingly, I was unable to find a name for this third view of the tribulation. So, I'm just going to make one up. We're going to call this the Middleist approach. Copyright 2023, Stacey Littlefield, all rights reserved. Just kidding. Now, for those of you keeping score at home, this is where I personally fall. I should have just called it the Littlefield approach, but this is where I personally fall. I'm happy to give you reasons why I land in this place in terms of how I understand the Great Tribulation, uh, but I don't want to take too much time uh, this morning doing that. There, is far, there are far more interesting things in Revelation 7 to talk about than when the Great Tribulation takes place. And also, you and I can disagree on this interpretation, and that doesn't make either one of us a heretic. One of us is probably wrong, but it doesn't make either one of us a heretic. To say that this view is middleist is to say that it combines both the preterist and the futurist view, and it adds something in the middle. So to those who ask me, do you think we're in the end times? I say yes, and we've been in the end times for almost 2,000 years. It's where we live. After the elder has answered his own question and named the great multitude in white robes who have been redeemed by Christ's sacrifice and have now come through this great tribulation, he continues in verse 15. Therefore, they, the multitude, are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. God will shelter them with his presence. More literally, we are told that God will spread his tabernacle, his tent, among us. Earlier in their history with God, God was believed to dwell among his people in the tabernacle, a, a portable temple, a tent, used by a nomadic people. In the future toward which all things are headed, the elder says God will pitch his tent among us 
and over us and dwell with us like never before. We will be sheltered by his very presence. This image comes from Ezekiel 37, where God promised his people Israel. Verses 26 to 28. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers, and I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. And then in partial fulfillment of this promise, we read in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, that the Word, another name for God in that context, that the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Again, more literally, the Word pitched his tent among us in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, who literally tabernacled among us. In Christ, in the incarnation that we will celebrate at Christmas, Christ has dwelt among us. In Revelation, however, all of this goes one step further. For after Christ's death and resurrection, he ascended, physically speaking, that is, he left us. He was no longer here. And he began to dwell in us by the Holy Spirit. But one day, according to Revelation 7, God will dwell with us and we will dwell with God, sheltered in his presence forever. And what will this sheltering in God's presence look like, practically speaking? The elder then quotes, I've told you before, um, Revelation quotes and alludes to gazillion places in the Old Testament. Here, he's borrowing from Isaiah 49, 10 and Isaiah 25, verse 8, and he starts to lay all of this out. Here's what it'll look like. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. John gives us a peek into the future once again. When the new heavens and the new earth come into being, and the new Jerusalem descends from heaven in chapter 21. The image of living water, uh, for example, is not only a reference back to Jesus' words in John 7 about the giving of the Holy Spirit. It also appears in the New Jerusalem as the river of life. And on both sides of that river stands the tree of life, which was in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2 and 3. The imagery is of a time in the future when everything we lost in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, gets restored to us, and more. As I said, the last part of verse 17 is adapted from Isaiah 25, 8. And God will wipe every tear, wipe away every tear from their eyes. Isaiah uh, says a little differently that, but it's the same idea. But get this, this idea of wiping tears from eyes or faces does not appear anywhere else in literature any time before Isaiah said it. It originates with him and with the God who gave the words to him. I ask you, is there any common, simple action more tender, more compassionate than to wipe the tear away from the eye of someone who is grieving? That is how God relates to us. That 
is how God is described. And that is God's promise to us for the future. Whatever we have suffered, whatever we have lost, whatever sorrow or burden or woundedness we have carried, God desires to wipe the tears from our eyes. And in fact, it was his idea in the first place. Everything in Revelation 7 is intended to pause this inevitable march toward judgment so that you and I, all who have come before us and all who will come after us, can just get a breather. We can catch our breath and we can catch a glimpse of our compassionate, loving, tender God and where he is taking all things. For it is where God is t- was taking all things that enabled Jesus to endure the cross. Hebrews 12.2 says that he was able to endure the cross and scorn his shame for the joy set before him. It is where God was taking all things that enabled the long list of the faithful people that we find in Hebrews chapter 11. And the many nameless ones, also in chapter 11, who were tortured, imprisoned, and put to death. It enabled them to endure. About them, Hebrews says... They were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised since God planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. It is where God is taking all things that enables the saints of the seven churches addressed in the book of Revelation to endure the seduction and the persecution of the Roman Empire, that they might be victorious, that they might sit with God and the Lamb on the throne. And it is where God is taking all things that that can empower you and I to endure, to be faithful, to be victorious, to worship the Lamb, along with all those who have gone before us, and to become more and more like Jesus along the way. In the first paragraph of the last chapter of Dallas Willard's classic book, The Divine Conspiracy, he writes about our future. He says, Those who have apprenticed themselves to Jesus learn an undying life with a future as good and as large as God himself. The experiences we have of this life as his co-conspirators now fill us with anticipation of a future so full of beauty and goodness we can hardly imagine. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. And as they prepare to play, I simply want to read to you from a few passages of Scripture, that, that God might use these words to transport you, to transport us, that we might get a vision of where God is taking all things. May these words be for us a breather, a place to catch our breath, to gather ourselves and continue to faithfully follow Jesus. May these words help to wipe every tear from our eyes today. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things 
have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. I believe that the present suffering is nothing compared to the coming glory that is going to be revealed to us. The whole creation waits breathless with anticipation for the revelation of God's sons and daughters. Creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice. It was the choice of the one who subjected it. But in the hope that the creation itself will be set free from slavery to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of God's children. We know that the whole creation is groaning together and suffering labor pains up until now. And it's not only the creation. We ourselves, who have the Spirit as the first crop of the harvest, also groan inside as we wait to be adopted and for our bodies to be set free. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. 